0: Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast Today, I'm joined in with a special guest joining me in from Thailand. Um, he goes by the name Vigorous Steve. So welcome to the show, man. Thanks,
1: guys. Uh, thank you for having me so much. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about a couple topics that you already prepared. So <laughs> let's get right into it.
0: Awesome, man. So maybe for my new listeners and, and those that don't really know much about you, do you want to fill them in on, on who you are and what your mission is? Yeah, sure. Um, so,
1: you know, I'm a typical bodybuilder. Uh, I've been bodybuilding for 20 years. Uh, half of the time drug free and about half the time enhanced. So I was drug free for 11 years. You know, I never saw the need to enhance um, until I was 26, 27 years old. And then I found it was time, you know, to get my hands dirty and see uh, what the fuss was all about because everybody around me was already enhanced. And uh, so I, I did my first cycle. And then after that, I decided, um, you know, it was time to travel. So I traveled through Asia and lost all my gains, obviously, because I came off cycle and traveled through Asia and did street food and all that kind of stuff. And then after that, when I came back, I uh, I dived back into bodybuilding. And now we're here, um, drug free again. Well, not exactly 100%, but off the hormones. So that's why uh, my, uh, my credibility has already disappeared, uh, but the knowledge still remains, right? So my mission is basically, you know, mo- I to- mostly talk about my experience in my years of coaching and trying to help people and, you know, tell the audience that things that work for bodybuilding, things that don't work for bodybuilding in my experience and what I've noticed with my clients, because there's there's so much variety out there, but not everything works. Mm-hmm. And I, I mostly talk for my own experiments and, and, you know, try to back that up with some of the experience I have with my clients and just promote a, a safer health practices. Because when I started doing research, you know, we only had the bodybuilding forums. Sure. And the knowledge was just, you know, and you couldn't see what people look like, right? And, and, and the, and, and the results that they got from certain experiments. And, and the, there would be pretty crazy information on the forums. And I know I'm a little bit, crazy sometimes also with the information that I provide but at least I I have the experience to back it up you know and then tell people said hey there's some risk involved so if you decide to incorporate some of these practices but it does work and then pay attention to your cholesterol and this and this and all these markers that you know start to change as you uh, get a little bit more experience in your bodybuilding journey
0: yeah that's so what that's, I respect I respect a lot uh, of what you're doing right now with that like um, harm reduction strategies things like that yeah. that there's so many bodybuilders that are going about using PEDs without any understanding on the pharmacogenetics <laughs> or pharmacokinetics.
1: Right, right. It's, 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 it's really difficult. I know, you know, the, one, the guys that end up very, very big, obviously, they're not 100% transparent about what they're doing. Mm. You know, so they'll say, ah, they don't downplay the dosages and they don't they forget to mention certain pharmacology uh, that they're also incorporating. Um and, and then it's all about the training and being hardcore and, uh, you know, disciplined and that kind of stuff. But there's more involved mm. and it never posts their blood work. So you always have to keep in the back of your head as the audience trying to learn something. This guy looks this way and this is his blood work mm. and this is always gone. So a guy only looks this way and I've always been 100% transparent about it. I look this way and this is my blood work. And, and then you can see what the, what the effects are, you know, and my blood work was of course not perfect on cycle, but it was as good as it can be uh, considering, you know, some of the, the performance enhancing drugs that I ran. And now that I was diagnosed with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, being a health conscious guy, I'm like, okay, it's time to resolve that first. Mm. Learn as much about it as I can, which I learned a tremendous amount about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease over the last five months, and uh, and, and the amount of blood work and a- ultrasound that I got over the last five months from people that have the same problem, you know, is is quite substantial. You know, way more than people might realize.
0: Mm. Let's let's dive into that non-alcoholic fatty yeah. liver. Like, do you want to talk about maybe? Um, well, what what do you think triggered it in your case?
1: So I I still can't pinpoint it. I, I spent four and a half months on uh, liver. Talks, which is a you know special book from uh, PubMed where they keep updating all the latest uh, liver research, whether that's NAFLD NA- 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 or NASH or cirrhosis and all that stuff. So you, you can find a lot of information, and I think it's just the cumulative effect of the bodybuilding lifestyle combined with performance-enhancing drugs. And, you know, and I was running a low dose of Accutane to keep my skin clear because I always had a little bit of acne on cycle, regardless of, you know, what diet practices I put into place. Um, yeah. And now that I'm off hormones, my acne is pretty much gone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I took 10 milligrams of Accutane uh, three times per week, which is incredibly low dose, enough to keep the acne at bay, but it might be linked to non alcoholic fatty liver disease. And the problem is with, with uh, NAFLD, acne, libido, uh, a skin rashes, that kind of stuff. There's so many compounding factors that it's very hard to pinpoint. So I think in my case, it's just the overall thing that I was doing. And I have no idea what when it was actually started to occur because I saw my liver enzymes over like 10 years slowly rise, slowly rise, slowly rise. And I always wrote it off as training intensity. Mm. Because my training intensity increased and, and, you know, performance enhancing drug increased at certain periods of time where my liver enzymes also went up. And then they would come back into range whenever I would would stop training that intensely and come off the performance enhancing drugs or reduce my dose to, you know, traditional hormone replacement. Mm. So it's, you know, like as a bodybuilder, I do my blood work like almost every month, but it's not like I'm doing ultrasounds every month. (laughs) <laughs> so it's just something that progresses in the background and I, I I still have no idea what caused it. I saw that my liver enzymes increased when I went to the carnivore diet. Um, of course, it was carnivore on 5,000 calories, so it had a significant amount of cheese and a significant amount of butter. It's a lot of saturated fat. And basically what non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is, there's two ways, either you get a lot of carbohydrates into your liver and that converts into triglycerides and gets stored locally in high uh, insulin states, which is very difficult for me considering I was doing a ketogenic diet mm. for the last uh, 10 years, 15 years. Yeah. Or uh, fat intake where 99.9999% of the fat that you intake exits the liver, but 100% of the fat that enters like a very small percentage stays in the liver. And I think that's That's basically what happened because I saw my liver enzymes go up after the carnivore diet and stayed elevated by 20 points.
0: Yeah, let's look at those liver enzymes. You mean specifically ALT, AST? What else were you looking for?
1: Um Mostly, so what I noticed is that my ferritin started getting higher and higher and higher. So I went on a diet of uh, mostly fish. So I limited my iron intake because I'm also on, you know, a vitamin C supplementation. So I get a decent amount of uh, iron absorption, right? So I was always at that sweet spot of like middle of the range ferritin and middle of the range iron with a solid hematocrit. Even when I was um, running prima bolin or boldenone or that kind of stuff that promotes red blood cell production. Mm. Um And then I... I went on a carnivore diet, my, my ferritin was off the scale, right? 400, 500. Wow. That's yeah. Yeah, very high, within, within a month. And wow. then recently, um, I reintroduced beef to my diet, and my ferritin went up again quite significantly. So that's another marker of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Mm-hmm. Like for me, all the traditional markers, like high serum triglycerides, not, not, not in my case, not in the case of most of the people that send me blood work. Interesting. But that's most—that's mostly like with like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is like a, a, a typical obese people disease, yeah. right? Or abusive disease. Now, performance-enhancing drugs, by definition, are abusive, unless you're doing hor- true hormone replacement. Everything over that is basically abusive, right? Because it's, its its not accepted in the medical field. So we do that for for literally for performance-enhancing and getting, you know, super physiological amounts of muscle compared to our natural potential, which I, I was pretty close to reaching at the age of 26. Mm. So all the literature that has been performed, it's all on obese people, people with type 2 diabetic, poor uh, diet practices, and I had none of those. <laughs> so the yeah. only thing I could tell for most of the athletes is high ferritin and high liver enzymes, because mm. most athletes have good serum triglycerides, good fasting insulin levels, mm. good fasting blood glucose levels, right? All, all those markers are in range. Um, so ultrasounds every three years is what I would recommend everybody to do.
0: Mm. I think you mentioned, um, you also ran metformin for like a thousand milligrams for like how many months, two months or something. Yeah. I did that
1: uh, at the beginning of the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease with vitamin E, uh, you know, so many, so many different things. And it, it didn't make a dent besides my IGF-1 that went to like 70 nanograms per milliliter.
0: Is with uh, IGF-1, just out of curiosity, um, how often is that? Like an important metric for bodybuilders to be screening for. Like how much of a role is it going to play in, in muscle growth?
1: A lot. Quite a significant amount. Yeah, That's and that's where a lot of the benefit from growth hormone comes from because growth hormone is only active for four hours after administration. Mm -hmm. You can stretch that a little bit by doing subcutaneous administrations uh, because the absorption rate is a little bit slower. But of course, the bodybuilders are going to do intramuscular injections. And because that leads to a higher IGF-1 production, right? high serum growth hormone concentrations lead to more IGF-1 production. And it's the IGF-1 that stays elevated for maybe 24 to 36 hours And that's where the increased insulin sensitivity comes from because IGF-1 and insulin act both on opposing uh, their their corresponding receptors, right? IGF-1 can activate the insulin receptor and insulin can activate the IGF-1 receptor to very low affinities, but it contributes, right? Over time, it contributes. So you create increased insulin sensitivity. So you don't need to produce so much insulin for the same amount of carbohydrate and nutrient uptake and over time that compounds in more and more muscle and of course you know the IGF-1 and the growth hormone both lead to hyperplasia
0: hmm. so it sounds like IGF-1 has a sparing effect
1: on the- it is a sparing and a muscle building effect even a sparing effect basically in a caloric deficit because wow. it increases insulin sensitivity so now all the nutrients are being shuttled, including the nutrients that are coming from stored body fat, mm. or being shuttled to um, metabolically active tissue and, and perhaps being recruited in hyperplasia because you know you need the cell membranes, mostly lipids. Mm. So you need lipids from some source, especially if you restrict dietary lipid or in, uh, fat intake. Mm. Um, so it highly contributes. The problem is it also contributes to aging. So you want your IGF-1 elevated to a certain extent, and then when you start to look older, then you actually are, then it might be a good time to incorporate something like metformin to bring your IGF-1 down.
0: So is that because IGF-1 stimulates mTOR? Is that what you mean? It stimulates
1: Also, yeah, and, and it contributes to hyperplasia. So the more hyperplasia uh. you get in your skin, you know, like you, you got the shortening of telomeres, and, and the more hyperplasia you create, the shorter your telomeres become. So if you speed up that process, you're basically directly contributing to aging because telomere shortening is one of the pathways that um, aging occurs. And then you get all these defects in the sin and some of them, you know, get destroyed because the DNA is sh- too short. But mm-hmm. some of them, they don't have, what is it called, senescent cells?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Did, you ever, did you ever explore any of the um, other anti-aging compounds, like apart from metformin, any other, like, I don't know, any other novel AMPK stimulators at all or anything? <laughs>
1: No, I, I run astragalus root extract that has a little bit of anti-aging properties and, and kidney protective health. Um, so that really lowered my cyst to the middle of the range over the course of years. So you really need to stay on top of it. It takes, it takes a very long time before you see a noticeable effect. And, you know, n- compounds like Cialis, five milligrams of Cialis, for example, you know, mild anti-aging properties. Mm, I think that, a lot of the anti-aging comes from just following good diet models. Yeah. You know, limiting eliminating your anti or the, the, the oxidant stress. And the problem with training is especially for bodybuilding, you create a lot of free radicals.
0: Well that's that's what I mean with the carnivore diet. What's the you know, we just don't know the outcomes in terms of from a longevity mm-hmm. perspective. Like we're lacking the flavonoids or polyphenols, which are all the anti aging, cool. you know, so what, what was your stance there? So I, I did it for a month
1: because I like to still run experiments and give it a month, you know, calendar month. So I, I picked the shortest month of the year, February. Uh, I think uh, so that I don't have three days less of, uh, you know, deleterious health effects. Yeah. So after I, I, you know, my carnivore diet was like this, uh, a lot of beef, a lot of salmon, a lot of whole eggs, and then uh, Parmesan cheese and butter and bone broth. Yeah. To, because I was in a, you know, in a caloric surplus, I was eating five thousand calories, and it's almost impossible to eat five thousand calories from beef and meat sources alone, even with eggs. Mm. So I, uh, you know, I followed all the guidelines, but I was in a caloric surplus. My total cholesterol was four hundred, so that's two hundred percent out of range. My HDL was ninety something, so almost.
0: 100%. Was, so was your cholesterol super high, even though you're using a range of supplements as well, like yeah, like ber- yeah. like. Taurine and stuff.
1: Citrus, bergamot, taurine, you know, really? fish oil at each meal and I'm performing daily cardio. And my cholesterol is never horrible on cycle, even when I run a significant amount of anabolics. Interesting. My cholesterol is still in range. And my HDL is like 50, and my LDL wow. is 110, 120. Yeah. Because wow. I take, you know, all the precautions mm-hmm. needed to keep my lipids in range. And I took all the precautions on carnivore, and it was the worst my lip, uh, lipids were ever. I've ever seen. My HCL was high, 93, that's good, but my LDL was 270, so that's a lot of potential for foam cells.
0: Do so you think it was um, mostly mediated via the reduction in fiber specifically, or fiber?
1: That also. Yeah, yeah so the yeah. first two weeks I didn't have any fiber, and then I saw my liver enzymes go up, and I'm like, oh, this, this can't be good, and, and you know, going to the bathroom was literally like a hippopotamus. <laughs> was disgu- yeah, really, It was disgusting. Yeah, right. And then I took the the the, uh, the cheese and the butter out for a while. It was still the same. So I got the same digestion with the beef and the. So I added in chia seeds. So I called it ninety five percent carnivore because five percent of my calories came from chia seeds, and that actually kept my stool a little bit more solid. But before that, was horrible, man.
0: But it's, with uh, the carnivore diet, I know a lot, and I personally played around with it. My mm. digestion's amazing. Not not my yeah. stools, but like there's no bloating, there's no cramping. Do you find right. that
1: as well? That was absolutely amazing. I could yeah. pull deep vacuums and I did a little bit of raw food in between so that improves digestion even further because you're not cooking all the you know the beneficial enzymes which are present in all you know food sources. Mm. Um, so I did a little bit of raw food and, and my digestion was absolutely phena- uh, phenomenal, mm. really, until I went to the bathroom and then it was an experience, <laughs> all right? But you know, comparing the carnivore diet when it comes to digestion to eating all raw food, I think eating all raw food is way better. Yeah. With, yeah, yeah. with vegetables and with, you know, uh, soaked almonds and, and, you know, uh, all the, all the stuff the hippies do <laughs> really. It was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot better That my digestion then was a lot better. So I, I think, you know, there's like all these extreme diets and even the ketogenic diet is a little bit extreme because you're limiting uh, carbohydrate intake. Um, it's, it's, I think all these extreme diets, I, I don't think that they're sustainable. Yeah. Now, whether that's the vegan diet or uh, carnivore diet or ketogenic diets, with ketogenic diets, if you do that for prolonged periods of time, you get some glucose resistance, yeah. right? Because you, you're not stimulating these uh, glucose uh, transporters anymore. And there's many of them in the body, besides the glute yeah. four, there's many glucose uptake uh, transporters that are present in the body, and you can stimulate some of them with vitamin C. But You can't stimulate all of them. So you still need to have some sort of carbohydrate intake and 50 grams from, you know, oatmeal or fruit or whatever is is a good source. But, you know, I was doing fruit pre-workout or post-workout, but then there's something to say for the fructose and the fat intake contributing to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So you do the best with the information you have. Um... But I think a varied approach, you know, is probably the most sustainable.
0: Yeah, I think there's a there's definitely still a time and place for the carnivore diet. But it's just mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, short term, maybe to correct some digestive issues. Uh, yeah, that's and, and
1: that's the only case I would recommend it. So maybe a month, you know, you do a carnivore diet, but you still have some fiber. because mm-hmm. I mean, everybody can tolerate chia seeds you know, or a little bit of vegetables. Like, and the weird thing is like for the last four weeks, I've only been eating vegetables besides my, my one cheat meal on Sunday. Cause I still have a relationship and I still like to go out to eat. <laughs> so I've been eating like vegetarian for six and a half days a week. Oh man. My digestion is just as good.
0: Really? Just as good. No you must be going, you gas. must be, your stools must be, you must be going like twice a day
1: now. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's best stools ever, you know, two wipes and you're done, you know, because it's so much fiber. That's that's the best. Yeah, we're going into details now, but that's probably the, what you want, right? Like with the carnivore diet, that was it was a gigantic mess. I had to clean the toilet every time, mm, yeah. you know, like a full full clean. So I I, I go by the entire thing, experience. Whether your, your digestion is good, you know, have no acid reflux, no bloating, no gas, and the bathroom is uh, you know clean. <laughs> so yeah, you have to look you, at all aspects.
0: What do you think um, would have happened with your Testosterone levels, do you think you would have seen a rise in SHBG because you've dropped the carbohydrate? Like, what do you think would have happened?
1: Well, uh, now you mean on the
0: carnivore or now? Yeah, carnivore diet.
1: Man, where was my SHBG? I was also on hormone replacement for bodybuilders. So it's a little bit more generous. You know, I was still training heavy. So I was running 250 milligrams of testosterone per week. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my SHBG was somewhere in the middle of the range, 25 nanomoles per liter. I keep my estrogen a little bit higher than most people um, saying that contributes to sexual binding globulin. So my sex drive was great, my anabolism was good because some of the sex drive and anabolism actually goes to the sexual hormone binding globulin mm. uh, because there's a receptor complex that actually takes sexual hormone binding globulin and allows testosterone to enter the cell. So besides membrane androgen receptors and nuclear androgen receptors, you have the sexual hormone binding globulin receptor, which takes the sex hormones. So it's people always say ah, it, it's inactive when yeah, it's in yeah. a SHBG, but that's not true. It's inactive when it's in albumin. Isn't it? Sex- <laughs> so this is a foreign bullshit yeah. nonsense. Yeah, everyone's, you know? everyone's trying- proviron at it.
0: <laughs> everyone's trying to suppress SHBG. Meanwhile, mine is through the roof, like almost off the scale. Mm-hmm. Alongside estrogen and testosterone, like everything. Yeah. That's how it should be, right? You'd rather
1: have- how, if you're trying to biohack and optimize your scenario, you try to bring everything to the top of the yeah. reference range. And and SHPG can be somewhere in the middle because the more testosterone or anabolics you take, the lower it's gonna be. It's inevitable. Uh-huh. Same as your HDL. The, the more anabolics you take, the lower it's gonna be. It doesn't matter what you do. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you throw the, you know, the, the selective estrogen receptor modulators at it, it will never be in the range again. But it can be as close to the range as it possibly can. Mm-hmm. But sex, like the, the lower your sexual binding globulin goes, the less anabolism you get because you get some of this testosterone and other androgen delivery through the sexual binding globulin receptor complex, but your sex drive will go down. So people take proviron, and their sex drive goes up because their free testosterone goes up and then their sex drive goes away because now their sexual binding globulin is so low that they're missing out on some of this uh, testosterone or DHT or estrogen delivery. Because you know the postman is uh, on vacation.
0: <laughs> yeah. So this Proviron. Um, Explain to my listeners what that is, because they won't know anything about that. All
1: right. So Proviron is a, a DHT derivative. You have uh, testosterone; it converts into dehydro-testosterone. <laughs> and you know, in 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 the quest to find more selective compounds, they developed uh, DHT derivatives. It's one of the groups of the um, testosterone derivatives. And then they developed uh, provirin and they figured out they found out that it has the highest binding affinity for the sex 1 binding globulin. So it binds and it basically acts as a suicide aromatized inhibitor where uh, aromacin attaches to the aromatized enzyme and it becomes inactive. An and provirin almost does the same thing because it has such a high binding affinity for the sex 1 binding globulin. It stays in there for a very long time. And now testosterone is only able to bind to albumin. Because mm-hmm. all the sexual-binding globulin um, is uh, bound with proviron. So now you have a lot of free testosterone. And as time goes on and sexual-binding globulin starts to deliver proviron to tissue, it basically you're, the proviron is taking the place of testosterone regarding uh, and, uh, androgen-mediated anabolism mm-hmm. or, or, or collagen tendencies and that kind of stuff. So you're missing out on part of the pathway that testosterone can induce. Mm. Including the sex drive one Because proviron by itself It doesn't do anything It has one function Just like uh, aromacin Aromacin blocks the aromatized enzyme And proviron blocks the sexual binding globulin mm. And then over time it will come down Because proviron can also enter the aromatized enzyme And block the conversion of testosterone into estrogen So when estrogen goes down prov- uh, Sexual binding globulin goes down even further Your HDL will go down And goodbye sex drive mm. You know, so it's, it's, it's a temporary thing. I only recommend proviring maybe the first four weeks. So let's say you 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 wanted to go on cycle and you're six from my body globulin, let's say 100. Like mine is 120 right now after this uh, this vegetable only diet. It's, it's off the roof. It's twice as high as it should be. But it, you know, it's a temporary state. I don't mind because I know I'm going to get a lot of androgen delivery by the time I get back uh, with my bodybuilding journey. Uh, so I will literally explode. Um, because the sex hormone binding globulin is so high. Mm-hmm. So let's say in your case, your sex drive is not so good, your sex hormone binding globulin is high, you go and cycle and you want to speed up the process, twenty five milligrams of provirin, maybe two to four weeks. Sex hormone binding globulin is in the middle of the range, your six drive is good, your free testosterone is high, then you discontinue it. Right. But all the guys they now get a positive association with Proviron and Six Drive and they continue too far. They overshoot exactly. They overshoot. Now the sex drive is gone. I'm gonna take more proviron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then they contact me and they, uh, you know, Steve, my sex drive is horrible. What do I do? Mm. So I'll take Look, the proviron out.
0: <laughs> let's let's talk more about the roles and the functions of estrogen in men because mm-hmm. I know a lot of people. Again, the bro science mentality. Let's just estrogen
1: it. phobia is uh, off the yeah. right now. Yeah, like to talk no, about but androgen phobia is also off the roof. So you have estrogen phobia amongst men and androgen phobia amongst women. PCI. That's why everybody's single nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, so you like both men and women both have sex hormones, testosterone, estrogen and everything in between, right? <clears throat> My wife has reasonably high testosterone concentrations for a woman. They're always out of the top of the reference range. That's why she's such a good athlete. And for men, if you bring your testosterone over the reference range, and you bring your estrogen under the reference range, your ratio is completely messed up. So your test needs, if your testosterone goes up, your estrogen needs to come up also because yeah. it's the testosterone and the androgens that skew the uh, ratio between HDL and LDL. So your LDL goes up, I'm sorry, right. LDL goes up and HDL goes down, and the estrogen is actually able to prevent some of that because estrogen brings the HDL up and the LDL down. they have a little bit of an opposing effect. Same as that androgens are neurotoxic and estrogen is neuroprotective. So, androgens up, estrogen down, poor lipids, poor neuroprotection. Now, how that compares to alcohol abuse, I have no idea. That has never been directly studied. Um, But there's, you know, if you look to some of the pro-bodybuilders that were known to abuse androgens, they're not very cognitive. You know, and whether that comes from the estrogen reduction or the high androgens, you're not really, we're not really sure.
0: So what's the link there with the estrogen modulating um, cholesterol? Is that because estrogen is impacting like PPAR, alpha like in the liver? Like what's That That I'm not sure. I
1: believe that it, it activates something in the liver where it promotes HDL formation and whether that is indirectly from s- some sort of cholesterol synthesis, yeah. right? because HDL and LDL both deliver cholesterol and lipids from and to tissue. Yeah. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I know that Novodex or selective estrogen and receptor modulators can actually promote HDL and reduce LDL also.
0: Hmm. yeah, okay. Interesting. Um, now, the context of um, CIRMs, let's talk about oh, like okay. um, uh, well, clomiphene and clomiphene, mm-hmm. some of these compounds. you want to explain what they are and how you'd best deploy them?
1: So there's several scenarios in where you can uh, employ selective estrogen receptor modulators. So I'm sure everybody's familiar by now with the term selective androgen receptor modulators, but it's a little bit misleading um, because they don't selectively activate or block estrogen receptors in speci- or androgen receptors in specific tissue. Like it would be perfect if a SARM would activate the androgen receptor in skeletal muscle and block it in the pituitary. Mm. You would get no HPTA suppression. You would not shut down. You, you, you would still produce luteinizing hormone follicle stimulating hormone and your testosterone production would never be down-regulated. Right? That would be perfect. Unfortunately, that's not the case. They they activate the androgen receptor to a certain extent in all tissues, so you'd still get pituitary shutdown and, and your testosterone goes with it. But selective estrogen receptor modulators, depending on which one you take, they activate the estrogen receptor in certain tissue, the estrogen alpha and beta, with different affinities, and they block it in other tissue. So they can block it in the hypothalamic and the pituitary in the brain, and they can activate it in the liver, causing estrogen-like effects. They block it in uh, adipose tissue, the lower body and the the chest, and they activate it in the uterus, for example. And then, you know, clomiphene, I think, blocks it in the uterus, and Novodex activates it in the I'm sure I'm mistaken a little bit because, you know, that's not my expertise about <laughs> estrogen biting in the uterus, uh, you know, considering them a bodybuilder coach for men mostly, but they they act uh, agon- agonistic and antagonistic depending on which tissues that they uh, bind to. Mm. So um, in most cases, bodybuilders use them in the recovery of their hypothalamic pituitary testes axes during post-psychotherapy because right. they're able to block the estrogen receptors in the hypothalamic and the pituitary, align for normal luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone over time. Mm-hmm. Because they, you know, there's a negative feedback of estrogen on the hypothalamic pituitary testis axis. And of course, in those situations, testosterone is low. Progesterone is going to be low if you PCT correctly. You don't let the trembolone and the nandrolone clear from your system. You're still <laughs> at- antagonizing the progesterone receptor. Mm-hmm. So you're, you don't PCT correctly that way. But by blocking the estrogen receptor in the brain, you allow luteinizing hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone slowly to come up over time. That's why we take that four weeks, maybe even six weeks. Sometimes people need to take it for a year during post-psychotherapy. Yeah. Another way is to block uh, the estrogen receptors in breast tissue so you don't get gynecomastia when your estrogen, prolactin, or progesterone levels are too high. Yeah. Another way is to fix your lipids. It's a quick fix. You know, Let's say your HDL and LDL is horrible, you use tamoxifen, to bring those back into range. It's mm. a quick fix for most bodybuilders works within two weeks. Wow. That's what I did after the, after the carnivore diet. And within two weeks, my lipids were much, much better. Interesting. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about, um, one of the most abused steroids, trenbolone. Yeah. <laughs> I think you have, maybe you have a story about trenbolone you'd like to share.
1: Yeah. So, you know, when I was doing my research on the bodybuilding forums <clears throat> and everybody was praising trenbolone like it's the best compound ever. And yes, for muscle building, is it's indeed the most sustainable compound you can take uh, compared to all the other compounds we can take. Um, on a milligram for milligram, it will basis it will yield the best results. Giving the best results, it will also come with a laundry list of side effects, and those side effects for most people are intolerable. So it's you know the the mood changes and the anger management that I experienced on Trimblon was already not worth it, and you have night sweats. And your body odor starts to smell differently, you know, because it's so androgenic and it, it, it alters metabolism to such an extent you get weird body odor um, or your weird dreams by antagonizing the androgen receptors in the brain and the progesterone receptors at the same time because it's a 19-nor derivative. So it also activates a progesterone receptor. And then it can increase prolactin concentrations, causing gynecomastia downstream. So <sighs> Trembolone is a huge trade-off drug. And the only situation where it's warranted is a contest. When you do a bodybuilding contest, and of course on the boards, they never say, no, just take high high trend, low test, and you'll start to look like a pro bodybuilder, you know, will change your genetics, that kind of stuff. (laughs) So after 10 years of experience, I realized, you know what, if you want to use trend, yes, there's one scenario where it's warranted, and that's uh, preparing for a bodybuilding competition. Where yeah. there's something to win, a pro card, a prize money, or for your sponsorship, where for half a day you need to look phenomenal, in that situation it's uh, useful. But for a recreational bodybuilder like myself, or during the off-season, it's absolutely not needed. Because there's yeah. much better drug selections out there, which will allow you to be uh, in a perfect or a good state of health, and a much better person mentally. Because yeah. it, it will, I, don't, I barely know anybody that doesn't change mentally from this drug. Yeah.
0: Interesting. So what about, um, I think I've heard you mention um, primabolin. primabolin. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that an orally bioavailable?
1: Yeah, so that's also orally bioavailable. You have a primabolin acetate tablets. They're uh, FDA approved in Japan, I believe, in, from Bayer. Um, I, I'm not really a big fan of orals that have an uh, ester attached because they, you know, you take them orally and ideally you want a compound that doesn't have an ester because it doesn't have to be cleaved off by esterases. So most of the esterases that are in the body are not found in, in the intestinal tract. So a lot of it doesn't get absorbed properly. Yeah. So I would always go with the enate, which you inject, and then the lipases and the esterases can start working on the forms pharma- uh, the, the, the carrier oil and then get to the active pharmaceutical ingredient. Yeah. So they cleave off the esterases, cleave off the ester, the enate from the primobolin over time that allows for more stable serum concentrations, better bioavailability. So Primo acetate tablets, I'm not really a big fan of. I never really recommend them. And I know a lot of women, they like to run Primo acetate, but Anavar is much better you know, on a milligram for milligram basis.
0: Is that because um, it doesn't have virilizing effects or anything or? Is that- all, all androgens
1: have virilizing effects. Right. And it's the same as with hair loss. You know, it, it just, it compounds. Over time, so you know they say nandrolone is reasonably hair safe, but I think still if you are 20 years on nandrolone, you might still get some hair loss if you're prone to it. And if you're 20 years on anavar, even though it's reasonably safe for women, even a low dose of 2.5 milligrams, 2.5 milligrams over 10 years 20 years, it still compounds into virilization. It's just a slower effect. You know, so the the overall androgen exposure really contributes to the side effects. So you have the dose. And the, the duration of exposure. And mm-hmm. for women, let's say, you know, you want to do contests, but you don't want to not do mas- masculine classes like uh, uh, classic physique or a figure or that kinda, those kind of classes. Mm-hmm. Let's say you do bikini or wellness. You want um, maybe low dose exposure for longer periods of time, only during contest prep when it's warranted to pres- help with muscle preservation in a caloric deficit. But nowadays, all these girls run that year-round. And then the first year in the contest, you they look great, and then by the third year, the fifth year, they looked a little bit uh, viralized, and that's almost irreversible. You know, I have a protocol to reverse it, uh, but it depends on the severity. You know, interesting. Yeah, it's okay. uh, yeah, it, it's it's a little bit scary.
0: It is, yeah. yeah. Um, do you want to discuss a little bit about um, your experiments with the n- new up-and-coming anti-diabetic drug, glutide?
1: yeah sure so there's um, I started hearing, hearing about this uh, through my wife's clients who are uh, you know a little bit of a, a high, they call it high so here in Thailand you know people that are well off coming from a rich family and they they don't really understand about fitness but they need the best trainer they could find so they they went with my wife because she's a four-time world champion and she's had many competitions won right so they come to my wife with all these questions about fat burning drugs <laughs> so And at one point, somebody mentioned something about uh, Sazenda, which is liraglutide. It's a glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonist. So let me explain how it works. When you eat food, your body releases two hormones, uh, glucagon-like peptide 1 and gastric inhibitory polypeptide, which also has a different name. Now they help with gastric emptying, uh, control gastric uh, juice, like the, you know, the digestive uh, enzymes that are being secreted and, and stomach acid. So they help to control how you process the food. And the glucagon-like peptide one receptor agonist helps with insulin and amylin secretion. Insulin helps to store the nutrients and manage glucose concentrations in the bloodstream, and the amylin helps to promote satiation further. So it's the glucagon-like peptide one that promotes satiation, gastric inhibitory polypeptide, and amylin. Now, when we take insulin, uh, or diabetics take insulin, that entire ratio is thrown off. Mm. So the insulin concentrations are high, and the amylin, uh, GLP-1, and GIP concentrations are low. But if you take something that mimics this natural pathways of the incretins, it's a family of hormones, if you ma- mimic this natural pathway, you promote satiation. So now you lower gastric emptying, you, you alter your, um, your stomach acid production and you promote a little bit of insulin release and amylin release from the beta cells of the pancreas. So now you get satiation. So now you don't feel so hungry. Yes. So That is the only reason why I was able to do this fasting mimicking diet of eating vegetables only because without the liraglutine, I'm, I'm you know, obscenely hungry. <laughs> and by, by taking it, I have a meal and I'm satiated and I don't think about food. And and you would think because it promotes insulin secretion, you would go hypoglycemic. But -hmm. that's only at very high dosages where people start to abuse these compounds. So I stick with the lowest effective dose, which is less than what is prescribed typically for people with type 2 diabetes who basically gave themselves type 2 diabetes by overeating and poor diet practices. right? And then when you start doing the research, you'll see that uh, liraglutide and some of the other GLP-1 receptor agonists are related to uh, pancreatic cancer right right but in people with type 2 diabetes who already had a poor diet model and probably continue to eat poorly if you're adding either uh, like a challenge you know I'm feel nauseous but I'm still going to continue eating so you you keep forcing the pancreas and the whole idea about taking insulin or GLP1 in cases of type 2 diabetes is by taking pressure off the pancreas mm-hmm. by not eating so much and supporting the pancreas, maybe with a basal insulin like Lantus or uh, a P-draw or something that acts longly, um, so the beta cells of the pancreas get a you know some time off for producing all this insulin. Mm. So, so does so,
0: does liraglutide? Is that got a, a long half life? Like what's the administration?
1: So that's uh, that's uh, it has about twelve hour half life. Yeah, and there's uh, several ones like dulaglutide or what is the other one called exenatide? Yep. Um, no, it's another uh, semaglutide. Sorry, dulaglutide and semaglutide have a very long half-life of about four days, five days, seven days, depending on the compound. And then exenatide is a short-acting one and a long-acting one. And semaglutide is an oral version, so that has the same half-life as the injectable version, but you need to take it daily because it, you uh-huh. know, it's a peptide, so you take it orally um and it you know the part of it probably breaks down so it has poor bioavailability but i believe they did something with it to increase the bioavailability but then that compound that they added also created stomach ulcers or something oh. like that so
0: there's always a trade off with pharmacology so they'll try trying, trying to modify the semaglutide to make it orally Bioavailable, 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 yeah. Bioavailable. I, I,
1: never, I didn't really look deep into it because I tried dulaglutide and it, I became extremely nauseous for the first two days after administration. Mm. And then towards the end of the week, I start to get hungry again. So mm-hmm. with the liraglutide, it allows for daily administrations. So let's say you do uh, your dieting Monday to Saturday. On Sunday, you have a refeed. Then Sunday, you don't take it. So you don't feel nauseous. You don't get this appetite suppression. So it allows you to refeed some carbohydrates when you're doing a cyclic ketogenic diet, for example. Mm. So Monday to Saturday, I would dose like 0.6, maybe 1.2 milligrams of glutide in the morning, depending on how hungry I felt the, the day before. Mm. And that's more than enough to suppress my appetite. And then Sunday I wouldn't take it and I would go out and have a lunch and a dinner, you know, as part of my refeed slash cheat meal day. Mm. So I could have some normalcy in my life. Um, yeah, because you know you can't stay inside eating all your own cooked food, right? Yeah. You need to go out sometimes, especially during COVID.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting um, going down that pathway to suppress appetite instead of mm-hmm. you know abusing stimulants and other hardcore heavy yeah. um, agents. What else have you used for appetite suppression? Man,
1: there's so many. So much out there for appetite suppression and fat loss. Like you got mega hoodia that you can buy over the counter that works reasonably well. Uh you need to dose that a few times per day, you know, intermittently as you need as required. Modafinil. You know, has some, some appetite suppression and even a low, low dose of 50 milligrams per day. I don't understand how people can run 200. That's, that's crazy. It's crazy to me. You know, 50, 30 milligrams sometimes, it's more than enough. It helps to suppress appetite as well. Um, some of the st- other stimulants like, uh, subitramine, you know, or there's another one. Uh, I can't remember. I tried it once and it felt like amphetamines, you know. So there, there's many, many stimulant based, um, fat loss or uh, appetite suppressants out there clenbuterol a little bit ephedrine a little bit um man intermittent use of growth hormone because it raises glucose concentrations and triglyceride concentrations in the bloodstream so you can use growth hormone as a fat loss aid or as a as an appetite suppressant because you're basically just dumping glucose and um and and triglycerides from body fat stores you know, and, and, and the glycerol backbone from the body fat gets converted into glucose to gluconeogenesis in the liver. So you raise serum concentrations that way. Um, so there's many, many methods to suppress appetite. Ketogenic diet suppresses appetite because you're in ketosis. And mm. uh, you can, and, you know, eating a, a whole bowl of vegetables suppresses appetite too, even though you don't get so many calories. So there's many, many methods to get that under control. Yeah.
0: Let's mm-hmm. look at, um, let's take a look at some of the, um, the water, the 2021 wada prohibited list. <laughs> you did a, you did a really good video on that. Guys, you have yeah. to check. If you're listening in, you have to go check out, um,
1: yeah. you Steve. won't, you won't be able to pass the drug test. So it's, <laughs> I mentioned it in the video, I so listen, just because they're not on the list or somewhat not prohibited, you know, it doesn't mean you're going to pass the drug test because the problem with the waDA doping list is that they mention a lot of the compounds, but some of them not directly. Yeah. So DMAa for example when you go to Wikipedia and you see what uh, d methyl amyl amine stands for you won't find it on the list but it present on another name one three d hex something all right so just because it's not on the list directly it doesn't mean um you, you know it, it's not prohibited so just a method of to analyze I got it's not found on the list so you should be able to call yourself drug free you know, even though liraglutide and, you know, the D-peptidyl 4 inhibitors are not found on the list, but you're certainly not drug free.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like they might be next year? Like these, these compounds? Or?
1: After me uh, announcing it on YouTube publicly, I'm sure there will be other. Listen, I've, I've helped so many people pass the drug test over the last 10 years, because that's how I, uh, you know, started coaching, you know, help people beat the is drug that, test.
0: Is that with like diuretics, masking agents, things like that, or?
1: No, no comment.
0: <laughs> <That's> <laughs> uh, some, things, it's,
1: some things it's better not to put publicly you know so um, there's there's masking, masking methods to speed up the clearance and then there's uh, way, other ways around the test, there's many ways around the test it's um, and part of that it's figuring out the detection times and then making sure that you know they get excreted and again it's it's a drug test that shows that people compete in, not natural shows mm. So all you have to do is be drug free on the day of the test, and whether that's a test one month before, or a random drug test, or uh, in competition drug test, all that matters is that you you pass the drug test. Doesn't mean you're natural. Yeah. Nobody ever said they were natural, you know. Mm. Yeah. So
0: it's so, um, uh, yeah. There's
1: th- a there's a lot of uh, <laughs> there's a lot of involved. Let's yeah. just put it that way.
0: Let's look at um some of the recent findings from this um, Harleen study because. Yeah, a lot of my listeners won't understand <clears throat> what post-cycle therapy is. So, do you want to explain that first, and then what the what the study maybe?
1: All right. So, there's there's no um, <coughs> there's no like uh, consensus about how post-cycle therapy needs to be performed. So, post-cycle therapy has been evolving over the last couple of years. So, let's say you take uh, steroids for X amount of years, or maybe one cycle. You know, that's what people still like to do. You do one cycle, you go off, and you do post-cycle therapy to restore your natural testosterone production. Uh, A lot of people don't do their baseline testosterone check. So they have no idea where their testosterone needs to end up at after finishing post-cycle therapy. That's why I always recommend people say, Hey, if you're drug free and you're thinking about getting your hands dirty with anabolics or SARMs, do a baseline check to see where your testosterone is at. That's where you need to get it back to when you go off cycle. Now, if that's 10 years later, you do your one cycle and it's 10 years, like I did three, three cycles. One was 16 weeks. The second one was five months and the third one was eight years. So I did three post cycle therapies in my life. Right. And I've helped many of my clients guide, guide them through the process. And a lot of change, a lot has changed over the last 10 years as I did my research. So I did my base baseline check at 26 years old. My testosterone was 650 nanograms per deciliter. Now we didn't have the information about icing your balls or ashwagandha root mm-hmm. extract or phosphatidyl deseratine. You know, all that stuff was not available back then. So now it is. And now I'm incorporating some of those practices to get my testosterone back up. So 650 nanograms per deciliter 10 years ago. And now it's around 515 nanograms per deciliter. Well, before I started this fasting mimicking diet, wow. now it's a bit lower. <laughs> so it's, it's, I would say that's a natural decline over 10 years. It's you know, my, 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 fo- it's still pretty good. Yeah, my father is a little bit lower. It was like 400. I can't remember. It was like somewhere in the middle of the reference range. So there's good potential that, that I would be able to get my testosterone back. But some guys are, before they start their cycle, 200, maybe already subclinical, and then they try to get it back to 800. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Right? Unless you were a really poor state of health before you started your cycle, but you should be in a good state of health before you start. I was okay. in a good state of health.
0: It's the other way. Oh. It's, it's often the other way around, right? The guys that jump on the gear, the ones that are in a shit state of health, right? Yeah, yeah, it's
1: like buying a sports car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. You know, the hormone replacement community, they, they use it as a, you know, I'm, I'm in a poor state of health and, yeah. uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I have my midlife crisis and I'm going to buy a sports car or they go on hormone replacement. But why don't we try to optimize your health first and, and then if it doesn't work, like all of my clients that are still drug-free, they contact me for their first cycle and tell them, let's get your health under control. Focus on the micronutrients, you know, and then see if we can bring the testosterone up a little bit and improve your sex drive and anabolism and overall, uh, you know, sense of well-being. In some cases it works, some cases it doesn't. Okay, then you have to look at hormone replacement. Yeah. Now, you do hormone replacement for a certain period of time let's say you want to come off cycle to have kids or you're you're bored of injecting or you're tired of bodybuilding or or, or pharmacology, whatever, or you have to, you know, resolve medical issues, you come off cycle with the information that I have, I would recommend everybody to let all the androgens decline, their testosterone, their estrogen and their uh, progesterone. So the problem is in that Harlem study, 50% of the people were on Trembolon, which is a 19 or derivative, which is detectable for up to five months.
0: Is that the most suppressive as well?
1: One right. of the most suppressive. Nandrolone is very suppressive. You know, like like very suppressive. There's no gradation. Right. It either suppresses or it doesn't. So if the if the metabolites or the compound itself is still in your system and it's agonizing the progesterone receptor in the hypothalamus and the pituitary, you forget about recovering. It doesn't matter if you block the estrogen receptor because the progesterone receptor is still being agonized. So you would need to take a selective progesterone receptor modulator which have a lower binding affinity than Trembolone and androlone and, and, and mint and all the other 19 nors. So it wouldn't even get to the receptor. Now there's another compound called mifepristone, which blocks all the receptors basically. So you, the estrogen, the, the the androgen, and the progesterone and, and everything in between. Uh, <laughs> it's glucocorticoid it, also, you know?
0: Do you want to um, explain to my audience what that drug is? Because it's, it's the, the morning after pill, right? Yeah, it's the morning after
1: pill, right? So it's, it's, it's a way to <clears throat> reduce, uh, um, you know, pre, what is it called, pre-labor? To, to early premature labor? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 so it, it's a morning after pill. So it's a single dose or a double dose. And uh, and you know that takes care of that basically. Um, so bodybuilders have been using that to speed up um, you know the the rate at with the androgen receptor, progesterone receptor and estrogen receptor being antagonized with what is in the bloodstream. But the problem is let's say you take Trembolon today and Miffy tomorrow if your person is a half life of 72 hours, 90 hours so it's it metabolizes from your system and then the Trimbalone is like thanks buddy <laughs> here I am again and then you still have to wait you know like say you take Trimbalone and or um you know parabolone with the super long half life and five half life later maybe a month or two months later Trembolone yeah. is still antagonizing the or agonizing the progesterone receptor. Wait, what's so, the
0: half? What's the half life of, of Tremblone?
1: Uh, Enantate is f- about ten to twelve days. Acetate is about three to five days, and right. hexo cyclocarbonate. I think it was like sixteen days. Right. Mm. Uh, so it has a very long half life, and. Yeah. The injection depot, which care oil that you uh, use plays a factor in that. Uh, how your lipases and esterases work, how your uh, glucocoronide system works—you know, allowing you to detox. So there's many different factors that contribute. You know, if you're if you get hepatic recirculation, so that all contributes. So the, the half life is just an indication. What I tell my clients and what I mentioned in the post cycle therapy ebook. You stop injecting. If you took like 19 nors, like termbalone, nandrolone, or other compounds with a long half-life or, or, or uh, you know, progestogenic, you go on hormone replacement first until mm-hmm. you feel normal. Maybe that's six months. If you really want to cough, you, you might want to take six months, wait six months, especially if you're on nandrolone with an 18-month detection time. Mm-hmm. So maybe at least six months you wait. And then you physically get used to true hormone replacement so okay. let's say your cycle was a thousand milligrams. You tapered at 200 or 150 milligrams testosterone for six months. You get used to this, um, uh, you know, normal testosterone concentrations in the bloodstream. Then you stop that. And when you feel like a little girl, you know, all your hormones have declined. Well, you're subclinical on the uh, testosterone, hopefully not the estrogen because estrogen helps with luteinizing hormone receptor sensitivity and, and some of the signaling. I, I still can't find any data on how it actually increases the LACG receptor, um, but, but there is some data out there, but I can't for life of me figure out how that systems works. So you don't want to crush your estrogen too low, but as long as your androgens are low and your progester- progesterone or metabolites are low, you can block the estrogen receptor in the brain with selective estrogen receptor no, uh, modulators like uh, tamoxifen or clomiphene or inclomiphene um, or even roloxifene or, or uh, tormiphene, you know whatever you have access to i would you know with the data i have now i would say uh, Novodex and clomid is pretty good but if you can find inclomiphene it's probably better than clomid itself mm-hmm. because it has less of these estrogenic side effects in the brain and mm-hmm. it's a little bit more selective mm-hmm. um, And then you write that out for four weeks, six weeks, allowing your luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone to come back, and then testosterone, hopefully, not in all cases, but hopefully, is comparable to before your cycle, you know, or somewhere in somewhere in the reference range. Now that takes months, and most people, including that Harlem study, didn't undergo that correctly. But I understand there's no consensus on what how to do post cycle therapy correctly, Mm. and it comes from experience because nowadays nobody does post cycle. Therapy anymore. We do blasting and cruising. We do a cycle, and then we go to hormone replacement. Then we do a cycle, and we go to hormone replacement. Mm. And 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 there's so many practices out there. Like you can keep your hypothalamic pituitary testis active, somewhat active, with ACG, or um, uh, human menopausal gonadotropin, or gonadorelin, or kisspeptin ten, or a low dose of enclophene to mm. keep the LH and FSH production going, mm. even though we'll still be at the bottom of the reference range.
0: Mm. There was there was one hormone that we sort of um, neglected, and that is prolactin. So I want to yeah want hear your stance there. Like, what can what can men do to modulate um, prolactin? So
1: prolactin is uh, one of those um, hormones that releases in response to many different things: eating, mating, ag- agonizing the progesterone receptor. Whether that's um, by taking pregnenolone converting into progesterone, or taking uh, 19 or derivatives or maybe even synthetic progestins or estrogens, which are found in plastics, mm. right? That's also, you know, like uh, phytochemicals. Um, so there's, it can be caused by many thing, different things, including pituitary adenomas. <laughs> so if you see a prolactin, and why is it always elevated? I'm doing everything I can to get it under control. It, maybe it's time for an MRI, mm. but then you would see other hormones mm. elevated as well, like growth hormone, luteinizing hormone, follicle stimulating hormone, everything else that comes out of the pituitary. You know, some of them will be elevated. So let's say you're perfectly healthy, but your prolactin is still high. Stop smoking weed, stop taking Kratom. Those drugs also elevate prolactin. So that's the first thing I ask. You know, I see the blood work. I ask them, smoking weed, taking Kratom. Half of the time they say yes, take that out, problem solved.
0: Or SSRIs as well. Yeah,
1: but I don't don't see that much of the SSRIs Hmm. uh, blood work. Most guys that come to me, they're not on SSRIs. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: So I don't see that so much. So I, you know, it could be a correlation, but I can't really uh, say that. But it wouldn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, if you, you know, if you're elevating your serotonin concentrations in the brain, I'm not. Is, is prolactin being released from serotonin?
0: Um. So the theory is that serotonin can antagonize dopamine, and and dopamine is. Yeah. What- drops the prolactin.
1: Right, exactly, right, right, right. Yeah. And then of course your dopaminergic drugs like modafinil for example, it is able to, you know, erase dopamine concentration and have some serotonin serotonin like effects. So I noticed that, you know, by taking modafinil, my prolactin is lower, but it's never out of range. It used to be out of range, but I was vitamin B vitamin B6 B5B deficient. Yeah. So I wasn't able to produce enough dopamine. Um mm-hmm. when I didn't know so much, I would take cabergoline to bring it down. Which now I don't recommend to anybody anymore because of its, you know, her list of side effects as well. This, mm. the uh, prolactin is also very complicated. Mm. To, uh, to, you know, there's so many compounding factors to help that get under control. And I know guys that are physically very active with the women and have high prolactin levels too. Yeah, just from that, and they take their vitamin B6 and 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 maybe modafinil to otherwise suppress that. Mm but mm. they're still physically active and the prolactin is top of the reference range.
0: Mm. Um,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, um, for my listeners, if they want to learn more about you, Steve, where can they, I know you mentioned some of your eBooks. I checked some of them out. They look really, really cool. Yeah. So, to, so
1: yeah. I have a couple of in-depth eBooks about bodybuilding pharmacology. You can find them on my website, vigorsteve.com slash shop. I'm still in the process of writing a fat loss pharmacology handbook, Uh, It's taking way longer than I expected because again, fat loss comes from so many different drugs and pathways and, and, you know, I extended that with keeping your appetite under control. So that's uh, currently in the making. Hopefully it'll be released soon because it's been weeks now, but I have eBooks about how to do cycles with bioidentical hormones and get true full hormone replacement. So whether that's testosterone, uh, neurosteroids like DHEA, pregnenolone, and, and, and optimize all the pathways that contribute to anabolism while keeping your health in mind, detailed eBooks about how to use insulin growth hormone, IGF one and uh, how to do post-cycle therapy correctly. <laughs> so you can cool. all find those on
0: my website. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, yeah, thanks for coming on the show, Steve. It's been an absolute pleasure. I know Miles would have learned a lot from this episode. Thank you so um, much for having me. Yeah. No worries. We have a lot of, um, we have a lot of like, you know, um, semi-professional athletes, um, not so much bodybuilders, but still there's a lot of those that want to dabble with, you know, some of these compounds. So guys definitely get in touch with Steve. If you want to work with him, um, reach out, subscribe to him on YouTube. Um, but otherwise, thanks for tuning in everyone. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Yeah. Thank you everyone for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want.